Now, as I read um, Philippians and Paul in the New Testament, he wrote three quarters of the New Testament and arguably is one of the most, outside of Jesus, most important characters and voices in the Bible. I'm fascinated by his declaration in Philippians as we start our study in Philippians over the next few weeks, to be able to say the classic verse that we say very easily and very quickly, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Uh, you'll find that Philippians is filled with, uh, with very quotable, very common, very well-known scriptures and, uh, you know, the kind of the coffee cup scriptures, if you like. But if we just pause and think about what it is that Paul is actually saying here, to live is Christ, that's quite the statement. And it's a fascinating statement because, you know, to say his whole life is all about Jesus Christ, that that the fact that he is here and breathing is about Jesus Christ, what kind of person can say that? What kind of characteristics does that person show? What, what, what does his life look like? And I'm very grateful that the Bible makes it clear that God is not a God who has favorites, that anything Paul had, I can have, you can have, so I am able to say to live is Christ. And what should my life look like? What would your life look like? There's a beautiful verse in John at the end. Uh, it, says, it says something about Uh, what our life should look like. And John is reflecting back on the things that he has written. He says these things, that the Gospel of John is written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And oftentimes we're, we're in danger of just stopping right there. That believing in Jesus Christ, like it's a, an addition to the rest of our lives. Something we do at the weekends or something we do when we're around certain people. But John carries on, says the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. So that that life comes from the source of believing in Jesus Christ. And so Paul really is living out this verse that he's saying, to live is Christ. He had a radically different life and and so should we. And we're going to see as we study Philippians what that life actually looks like. We're going to talk about relationships. We're going to talk about how we think. We're going to talk about all sorts of important elements of our life all pointing to how it should be different. Should it not affect the way we talk? Should it not affect the way that that we work, the way that we Uh, bring up our children, the way that we spend our money, even, the Bible says, the way we look. If you look at Psalm 34, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, it says that that as we focus on Jesus Christ, on God, it, it changes our face, that we, actually says we become radiant. That sounds pretty good. Unashamed, it says. You know, there should be a mark on our lives as Christians. And if you are here today and you're just exploring faith and spirituality and you're intrigued by Jesus and the Bible, let me, let me tell you, you should be surrounded by people who have a mark of something different about their lives. A radiance. It's like heaven in the ordinary. It's like part of something 
eternal and supernatural is just a part of our everyday lives. And so as I'm reading Paul's letter to the Philippians, I'm constantly being challenged. Is, is that what my life looks like? You see, joy, as, as the title of our series, really is a foundational aspect of what we should have as a Christian. Uh, and, and joy is so powerful. You see, you read, you read uh, about Paul and you'll see this contagious uh, joy resonating through his life. Regardless of his circumstances, there's just something that is deep within his soul that keeps on bubbling up. You, you just can't press it down. It's like there's a buoyancy to his attitude and his love for Jesus. You can't, you can't keep this guy down. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, there's so much freedom when you have joy in your life because what do you do to somebody who just finds contentment in every situation? He says that later on in Philippians. I have learned to be content where I've got everything or I've got nothing. It's all joy. That's a buoyancy. Like You you just can't can't get rid of it. To live is Christ. To die is gain. You kill me, I get more of Jesus. You let me live, I'm just going to tell more people about Jesus. There's a joy, a buoyancy in his life. And the Bible says that that can be ours too. In fact, more than that, if you're a Christian, through the cross, one of the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy. It's, it's yours. Notice that I didn't say happiness. You see, it's possible to have an experience of happiness without actually having deep joy. See, happiness is temporary. You can, you can be happy just, just for a few minutes without a, a sense of joy. You see, joy is deeper than happiness. Joy is a deep security. It's a confidence. It's an assurance. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a rejoicing. Sounds good, doesn't it? Okay. Way to go to encourage the preacher, church. <laughs> Sounds good, right? Yeah. Oh, that's good. So as I look at writing, whether it's Christians or whether it's atheists or philosophers going back centuries, there's, there's something really clear about humanity. We have some commonalities. Whether you're a Christian or not, there's certain things that just by being human, we, we show, we, we give clues as to what's actually going on inside. And this pursuit of what the world would say is happiness, I, I would say is actually a clue of the fact that we've all been created of, by God. See, in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11, it's a beautiful verse, it says that, that we've all got eternity in our hearts. There's just a mark of the supernatural, there's a mark of the eternal, there's a mark and the fingerprint of God on every person. And, and, the, and one of the clues is this constant pursuit of what Paul is going to say is joy, whereas the world would say is happiness. But happiness and joy are very different. Happiness is temporary, joy is eternal. There's a depth and assurance to it. We have an appetite for joy that... The world and our culture can never satisfy. I was made to read a book when I was younger as part of my schooling by Albert Camus. And the book is called The Myth of Sisyphus. It was written in World War II. I'm sure you've all read it. Um, 
I actually recommend you do read it. It's a fascinating book because here you have a man who's already said there is no God. There is no God, and therefore he looks at life. And this myth is about, uh, about Sisyphus who is being punished by Greek gods, and he has to roll a rock up the side of a mountain, but never gets to the top of the mountain. Something always happens for the rock to tumble back down. And he's condemned to this life. It's just this, and he, and he uses this myth to basically t- say something that the Bible says, except Albert Camus stops, whereas the Bible continues. What, what Camus says is this, is that the, 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 the heart, the human heart, wants something that the world cannot give. The very thing that we long for in humanity you can never find. And so his, his statement is, therefore life is hopeless and meaningless and absurd. In fact, his first paragraph talks about suicide. What's the point? Because we have these desires, this need for truth and justice and love and, and all these beautiful things that Camus says cannot be found in the world. So therefore, what's the point? And, and so therefore, I would say, yeah, I agree. We do have this common need in humanity for joy and love and truth and justice. But it doesn't stop there, Albert. Because you can find it. You're right, not in this world, but in God, in Jesus, in the eternal. You see, we have this vacuum inside of us that we desperately try and fill with things called happiness. There's a, an interesting verse in, in, uh, in Proverbs. It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. I want to suggest to you that the pursuit of happiness in this world actually steals our joy. Let, let, me, let me explain. The pursuit of happiness steals our joy. The things that the world offers are very temporary, whether it be uh, food or drink or relationships or sex. Or, and, and these are all things that have been given to us by God to make much of him, but the world centers on those things as the answer. And so what we do is we, as, as humans is we try and consume as much of that as possible, thinking in that is the answer to fill the vacuum that we have in our lives. But it turns in on itself. It terminates on itself. And so something that is good actually eventually steals our joy. Food is great. I mean, it gives you temporary happiness, doesn't it? Does it give you long-term joy? Well, depending on how you see food, some people will just consume as much food as possible, believing that in that is happiness. But what it actually does is it steals your joy because of what it results in. Does that make sense? Drink. Exactly the same thing. We consume and consume. Sex in our culture is definitely the same thing. There's this, there's this belief that somehow, as long as we can have as many relationships as possible, that this vacuum, this void that we have that has been placed in us by God, if we've been created in the image of God, it's a clue of God's existence, this, this need for something we can't find, that we try and fill it in with relationships And so we have young women giving sex in order to get love and attention. And we have young men especially giving love and attention in order to get sex. And there's this this bizarre kind of consuming of something that ultimately will steal your joy. 
And you can look at money in the same way. You can even look at relationships and family in the same way. That if we think family and relationships are the answer, as beautiful as they are, that ultimately we're going to be disappointed because it doesn't fulfill the vacuum that we all have. This is what's going to make me happy, we say. And then we find out that it's not enough. I, uh, when I was a middle school teacher many years ago, one of the things that I used to teach was all about space and the solar system, and, and, I, and I loved it. It was, it was great because there's just such a, a size about it that's fascinating to me. And, and one of the things that, uh, well, ironically, you won't find, but scientists know that they're there, are black holes. You can't actually see a black hole because it's black and it's a hole. They just know that it's there by what's happening around it. And a black hole is where a star has imploded and it's literally sucking in light and everything around it. It just continually consumes and consumes and consumes into nothingness. It's a little bit like us outside of Jesus. We just keep on consuming and consuming, believing that somehow we're going to find out the answer, but it just goes into nothing just disappears, and like Albert Camus says, it's just hopeless. If I could just get here, if I could just get this, if I could just have this kind of marriage, if I could just have this kind of job, if I could just be in this place, if I could just not have that, or this person, or if this person was different, and we're just consuming, and, and, and it's never satiating the desire that we all have. There are people in the world, I'm not one of them, <laughs> who have got to a place in life where they know this to be the truth. Let me, uh, let me show you a couple of them from, uh, from modern culture and not so modern. Uh, this young lady, who's, who's this? Pop quiz. Sophia Loren. She said this, and I'm hoping they stay. Yeah, she said, my life is what I have always dreamed of. I've made films. I'm married to Carlo. I've born his children. Everything seemed marvelous. There's only one thing I lack in the very center of my life. I find there is a void impossible to describe. See, there's people who have lived life and got to the thing that other people are striving for. See, hope deferred makes the heart sick. I'm going to hope that one day I'll get there and one day I'll have the money and one day I'll have the looks or one day I'll have the partner or one day I'll have this, but hope deferred makes the heart sick. And Sophia Loren in her statement here proves it that you're going to get there, maybe some of you, but you'll find that that too is empty. Ecclesiastes is rammed with statements like that. A little bit more modern, uh, Jim Carrey I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. (laughs) Isn't that true? I'm not there. I'm not rich. I'm not famous. I'm not, you know, I've not got everything that these people have got. And we can fall into the trap of believing that if we could just get there, we'll find joy. Can I tell you? I'm thankful that God has given us people in our culture like Jim Carrey and Sophia Loren who have got everything that our culture says is right and good and still say it's not the answer. They're just proving the Bible. Love it. They don't even know that they're proving the Bible to be true, and they are. See, all the money and beauty and success is just consumed and it disappears because there's something missing in the center, a vacuum of eternal proportions. 
And people have it all are disappointed, and those that are journeying towards it have hope that they'll find the answer, and they won't. So what has this all got to do with Philippians? You see, in Philippians, we find a better way. Let me, uh, I'm sorry, Jim, I'm just going to move on. We find a better way. The year is AD 62, and Paul is near the end of his missionary journeys. He's on his way uh, towards, ultimately, a couple of years later, his, his death, his beheading. And, and uh, he just seems to be going from imprisonment to imprisonment right now. And so this particular time, he's chained to a Roman officer in a house that he has to rent himself. He's in house arrest, and, and so this costs a lot of money, so the Philippian church send him money probably just to cover his day-to-day living expenses, and he's overwhelmed with the generosity of the Philippian church, and he actually refers to the Philippian church in, verse, in chapter 4 and verse 1 as his joy and his crown, and so what we have here in this book of Philippians is this thank you letter filled with joy and rejoicing. In fact, you'll find that it's 19 times in these in this really short book that Paul refers to rejoicing and gladness and joy while being chained to a Roman guard. Just imagine for a second being chained to anybody day to day, never mind a Roman guard. But he's just overwhelmed with the beauty and the joy in Jesus and it overflows to this, to this beautiful book. It's a unique book. It's not filled with instruction, it's just filled with encouragement, which is why we love to go to it and quote from it. And I'm really looking forward, along with Pastor Phil, of pulling it apart over the next few weeks. But he starts, he says, chapter 1 and verse 3 to 5, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now. Phil has already quoted tonight. It's a beautiful. It really frames the rest of the book. Because he mentions two very significant things. The first thing is joy. And the second thing is gospel. And really that's what the Philippian uh, book is about. It's about joy and the gospel coming together. And resulting in a maturity and a life that Paul is able to stand in complete freedom. And say I have joy because of the gospel. Therefore my life is free regardless of my circumstances. I don't need the happiness that the world offers because it's temporary. I have something that has filled the vacuum. That will carry me. You see, this man, Paul, is in constant danger and yet has this contagious joy. Look at what he says in, in 2 Corinthians and, and uh, chapter 11. This is from the message. I've worked much harder, been jailed more often, beaten up more times than I can count, and at death's door time after time. I've been flogged five times with the Jews, 39 lashes, beaten by Romans, rods three times, pummeled with rocks once. Can you imagine what Paul looked like? I mean, he's not going to be a head turner for the reasons that we think are good. I reckon Paul's pretty hideous to look at, no disrespect to him. But you can't be beaten up that many times without it leaving a mark. Pummeled with rocks once. I've been shipwrecked three times and immersed in the open seas for a night and a day in hard traveling year in 
and year out. I've had to ford rivers, fend off robbers, struggle with friends, struggle with foes. I've been at risk in the city, at risk in the country, endangered by desert sun and sea storm and betrayed by those I thought were my brothers. I've known drudgery and hard labor, many a long and lonely night without sleep, many a missed meal, blasted by the cold, naked to the weather. What an amazing description of life in Kelowna. (laughs) And yet... He can say it's with all joy, my friends. He says, join me in gladness in this book. He says, join me in rejoicing. Like Paul. Either he's quite naively, beautifully insane, or he has learned something. He's got hold of something that, friends, you and I can also hold on to. He's consent in all things, whether he's floating around in the middle of the sea, Or whether he's enjoying a good meal with friends, he's like, I'm happy, give me either, because I have Jesus. I have the gospel, I have, my vacuum is filled. You see, he had an eternal answer, something infinite in size, something so big, so spectacular, so supernatural, so infinite, that regardless of his circumstances, he is able to point to Jesus and go, I'm all good. You see, Paul links joy and the gospel. See, the Bible says that we're made in the image of God. And I've, always, I've, always, I've, sorry, I've already referred to a clue of that, this pursuit that we all have for something more. There's an eternity about you, friends. Just, let's just seal a pause about that. There's an eternal, supernatural, infinite element to every one of us and no matter how hard we rail against that and try and make this world all there is deep down inside when we switch off all our technology and it's just you and your spirit and your thoughts maybe late at night there's this sense that we know that to be the case when it's just you and your thoughts for some of you in the room that's a scary place to be because it reminds you that you're pursuing something that ultimately is gonna be empty. And so we fill our life with distractions, with happiness, with those temporary things. To say that we have so much in this world, have we ever been so bored? You know? Like just spend a little bit of time with a 17 year old, you'll know what I mean. Like we have so much, and yet we're still searching for something. You were designed for God to be in the center. And that's what Paul had learned. Notice he says, learnt. I have learnt to be content. This is not something that comes natural. Christian friends, this is something we have to work out. And it's another thing you'll find in Philippians, that we need to work out our salvation. Not work for, work out. There's a, there's a, there's a, a working out, there's a learning, there's something we need to do. And Paul had learnt that, and from that comes the bubbling of the joy through the gospel. I quoted a couple of weeks ago a, a psalm that has been so much on my mind. 
Psalm 27, I'll just read it to you in verse 4. It says, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. See, I think what Paul is communicating to us in Philippians, and you're going to hear Phil and I refer to this a lot over the next few weeks, is there's a lot of references to how you think, what your focus is in your mind in Philippians. And here we have David who's saying, I'm choosing to focus, to gaze, to seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of God. You see, what Paul is encouraging us to do in Philippians is to gaze upon the beauty of Jesus. That sounds like a strange thing to say. What does it mean to gaze? It actually literally means to have communion with, to connect with. That not only knowing that God is holy, but experiencing his holiness and his love. Do you have that, friends? You know, I've been a Christian for 25 years. I've been preaching for as long as that. And I have to say that like Paul, and I will show you in a second what I mean, there's an increasing desire to know him more the longer I go. It's not, it's not something that I'm satisfied with yet. And even in the last couple of months, I know for myself, it feels like I have moved from looking at God to gazing upon him. There's a difference, isn't there? You can go down to the lake and you can just look and go, huh? Right. and back to your phone. It's kind of ironic that we spend more time taking pictures of things than we do just gazing. When you're on the top of a mountain or you're looking across something beautiful, do you not find that as you gaze, there's always something else to look at? The more that you look, the the more there is to see. And you just want to stop and you want to consume. You want to commune, if you like. You want to connect. You want to enjoy. And it's the same thing with God. As you start down the journey of gazing upon Jesus and the beauty of the gospel, you'll find there is more and more and more to see. So Paul, at the end of his life, was able to say that I might know him, in Philippians again, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering so that I might become more like him. I just want more. I want more. I want more. As I was driving here this morning, that was my prayer. God, I want more of you. I'm not satisfied. I'm sorry, God, but I want more. I want to gaze. And as you pray that, there's just this sense of assurance and security and a bigger story than you that, that just kind of bubbles up from, from within. And that, my friends, is joy. And his promises, as good as it is today, next week... You can have more. Do you have that? Or do you just look? When we look at the cross, do we gaze upon its beauty? See, we get to gaze upon the beauty of God through Jesus Christ. Why do we sing songs? Why does Josh and Curtis and the other people who who lead, why do we do that? It's what they're doing is they're trying to orient our gaze, our look towards Jesus Christ. So when we sing together our hearts, this is why it says the Bible, the Bible says that God inhabits the praises of his people because we all gaze together. Now you can just look as you're worshiping, checking your phone. So what you're actually doing is gazing upon that, upon, rather than upon the beauty 
of Jesus. And you can replace the photo. It could be something else. What, what is it that you're gazing upon? So I see as I read through Philippians, there's this clear connection. And, and Paul refers to it right at the beginning. There's a connection with joy and the gospel. We can experience the beauty of God in Jesus We can look upon and gaze upon the sacrifice that he made, that that he came to be ordinary, that he lived this perfect life, that he was rejected, he was abused, he was beaten, he ultimately died. And in dying, all those things that I'm trying to get rid of in my life, the vacuum that is there, that I'm consuming and with sin and all that other stuff, That all dies with him. And in its place, this vacuum that we all have is filled with a joy unspeakable. That's what makes it contagious. That's what should shine out of us. And as we come to the end of, our, of the message and we move towards worship in second, and, and you know what? You're going you're gonna to sing this song at the end. You know, oh, Josh and Glenn have been chatting. Honestly, we, we didn't talk. We do talk, but we didn't talk about his final song. And it's such a beautiful song to be able to gaze upon the beauty of the gospel. To actually ask yourself some questions. And this is how I want to end and... As many of you know, as soon as Phil and I finish preaching on Sunday morning, we, we head over to the south and we, we do it all again. So I'm going to leave it to Phil to pull it all together at the end. But here are some questions that I'd like to ask you just to frame some of your thoughts and your prayers as we move into this next part of our service. Are you just chasing happiness? And how's that working for you? Do you experience deep contagious, infectious, resonating joy in your life, regardless of your circumstances? What are you gazing upon for the answer to that vacuum that we all experience? What is at the center? Is it Jesus? Because here's what I know, friends, and I'm so thankful That as we just spend a minute or two, he is so gracious and so loving and so passionate about his children and so passionate about the gospel that it literally just takes a few seconds to enter into his presence and enjoy all that he has for us as we gaze upon the gospel and all that Jesus did and all that what that cross represents. His promise is so beautiful. Let's pray. God, we started our the sermon, Lord, just by quieting ourselves before you and and asking you, Jesus, to speak to us. And Lord, I finish the message in exactly the same prayer, that Lord, that you would speak to us, that Holy Spirit, you would do that which only you can do, which is draw us to you. And Lord, like David, 
in Psalm 27. He says, one thing I ask of you, Lord, we're asking that you would help us to gaze upon your beauty. We would gaze upon the beautiful gospel. Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. I did not deserve it. I didn't do anything to get it. But Lord, it was just this gift. And so Father, I pray that today as we're together as a church, that we would just reach out and we would grab hold. Your word says that you are at hand. In Philippians, it says you are at hand, Lord. God, we invite you in this place now. Praise you, Jesus.